Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. I hope you enjoy this message today. And if you're looking for more resources, check out chrisvalentin.com. Holy Spirit, we thank you for what you're doing all over the world. We just pray for your grace to be on the speaker. Come on, this is for your good. And Lord, we pray that you would just bless the congregation. We pray for everyone who's watching by Bethel TV. God, we just pray that you would just touch them too. We thank you for it. Amen. Amen. Well, I was inspired by those missionaries. Not that I'd ever want to go there or anything like that. That looked really uncomfortable. (laughs) But I sure admire people who do. I want to talk about making disciples. We've been doing this series on discipleship, and I thought I'd just kind of enter into that whole um, subject and talk about discipleship and some of the things that I've learned from discipleship. By the way, if you didn't hear Eric's message this morning, it was amazing. It was amazing. This whole thing on it. How many of you did not hear it this morning? Where were you? <laughs> wow, good thing Jesus didn't come. <laughs> you guys would be reading that book, Left Behind. <laughs> I kind of tell you a little bit about my story, and, and I really, um, yeah. So, and I've told my story so many times, sometimes I, I hesitate, but I, I feel like this is kind of like um, the foundation for the way I see life. You know, I, um, I, I, you probably know this if you've heard many of my messages, but uh, when I was 15, my, I had an encounter with the Lord. My mother was really sick with psoriasis that covered her entire body. And uh, we had had a prowler in our house for almost a year, about I think about nine months by, by this time, nine or ten months. And uh, my mother was sleeping with a shotgun, and I was sleeping with a rifle. And, and a prowler got in, actually got in our house twice. He, he came through my window one night, and I uh, jumped up in the middle of the night, and, and he jumped out of the window, and I took a shot at him. I didn't hit him. But uh, it was a lot of stress. I was the oldest of three kids. So we weren't raised, and we weren't raised to be atheists. We just were, we never talked about God. We never went to church. And then uh, after that incident, I think it was the next night after that incident of the guy getting in my window, and I, I said out loud, if there's a God, if you heal my mother, I'll find out who you are, and I'll serve you the rest of my life. And an audible voice said, my name is Jesus Christ. You have what you requested. And uh, when I woke up the next morning, my mother was completely well of psoriasis, which covered her, almost her entire body. And then, uh, and then I, uh, and then about, I, you know, recollection isn't perfect as far as time, but probably about a week later, the voice came back and he said, my name is Jesus Christ. He said, if I healed your mother, you'd serve me and I'm waiting. And uh, so I began to, um, I began to search for God. I, I, the only thing I knew is his name wasn't Buddha cause the, or, or Muhammad because he said, my name is Jesus Christ. So I'm like, I, I have to tell you, I didn't know the difference between Mormonism or, or Jehovah's Witness, I just know his name was Jesus. So I just started going to churches. Uh, Kathy was my girlfriend at the time, and uh, she was 12. <laughs> I, I see kids 12, and I'm like, I was engaged when she was 13. We were engaged. So, but, uh, so we started on this journey. Lots of times I'd go by myself, but I'd go to sometimes two and three churches on a Sunday, and I would just stand in the back and 
wait for God to do something. And, um, and I would say the God who spoke to me isn't here. Now, in fairness, he totally could have been there. I had no idea what I was looking for. I couldn't read. I read on the third grade level when I graduated from high school. And of course, in those days, most of the people who were older here would remember we only had the King James Bible, which was kind of in tongues. So, uh, <laughs> so I just went from church to church, and I, um, I actually raised my hand. I, I've never told this, I don't think I've ever told this part of the story publicly, but I actually raised my hand three times to receive Jesus and went forward three times, but nothing ever changed. I went forward in a Billy Graham crusade, um, you know, with thousands of people. Love, by the way, love Billy Graham, but nothing changed for me. I prayed the prayer, nothing changed for me. And uh, then when I was uh, 18, so three years later, still in, in this search for God, I was uh, managing um, a uh, repair shop, and one of the guys there who was now, you know, he was a Jesus people guy. I didn't know he's a Jesus people guy at the time. Long-haired, former hippie, drug addict who found Jesus. He worked for me, and he said, hey, you need to come to my home group. And I'm like, okay. And he kept asking me and asking me, and I'm like, he seems a little weird. I don't think I want to do his home group. And uh, finally, just, you know how you say, yes, you'll come, and then you just don't keep, you just keep not coming, and pretty soon, out of guilt, you're like, all right, I'm going. And he said, well, you have to, we have to go, get there early, so if, if we don't get there early, then you, we won't get inside the house, and we'll have to sit on the lawn. Sit on the lawn? the heck kind of group are you going to? I mean, grazing in the grass ain't a gas. You know what I'm saying? So we get there like, I don't know, 6.30, half an hour early, and there's already kids everywhere. It's in a house, and it turns out to be like 110, 120 kids packed in this house, all former drug addicts. Kathy and I were not former drug addicts, and we get there, and we're sitting on the, in the, we get there early enough to sit in the front room floor, and we're sitting on the floor, and they start and the music starts, the worship starts, and they're singing, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. How many of you know that song? <clears throat> I'd sing it for you, but they'll put me on the worship team, and I'm just so busy already. <laughs> I believe in miracles. And while they sang, young people stood up and said, Jesus delivered me from heroin. Jesus healed me from cancer. Just spontaneously stood up. Just gave one-line testimonies. Jesus healed me from epilepsy. Jesus delivered me from heroin. I mean, it was so powerful in there. At the end of the worship, the young man who was leading, he was probably maybe three years older than me, 21, 22 years old, leading just from a guitar. He said, his name was Ken. He said, does anyone in here want to receive Jesus? And I'm, Kathy and I both raised our hand. Yes, hello, three years, that would be me. And um, so we both, he said, pray this prayer. We prayed a prayer. And afterwards, he came over and sat on the floor with us after the whole night was over. And he said, you just received Jesus and you became born again. And he opened the Bible and shared a few verses. Remember, I had never read the Bible before. Read a few real simple verses, John 3.16, um, and talking to us about the fact that we were born again. And he said, you're born again and you're like a little baby. You're like, your spirit is like a little baby and you need a father. And I'm like, I've needed a father all my life. That sounds good. And he brought two men that were probably three or four years older than us to, right up to us. They sat on the floor next to us and he said, which one of these men do you want to be your father? 
I'll just pick the better looking guy. <laughs> Funny part too, I got to tell you that, so I said, I picked that guy, his name was Art Kipperman. And Art became my father from that day on. He became my father. <laughs> Funny part is they prayed for us, right? They said, we're going to pray that you receive the Holy Spirit. I'm like, the Holy who? Like the Holy Spirit. We're going to pray for the Holy Spirit. And he's going to give you a prayer language. And so they prayed for Kathy and I. And Kathy immediately, like, she just like, shut up, I'm like, whoa. Didn't know she knew that language, you know? They prayed for me for six months. And I, nothing happened to me. And Kathy, we'd be driving home, and Kathy would be like, that was so amazing. Oh, Shabbat, ya, da, da. I'm like, stop, man. Show off your prayer language. Just so arrogant, you know? And Art was, uh, Art uh, Kipperman, his, he uh, very soon, probably a couple years uh, after that, he, he married a, a gal named Kathy, and and we married uh, soon after that, and they became our mentors, our disciples, and we met with them every week. Every week we went to their home, and it was really, Art was, had a personality just like Bill Johnson, really laid back, kind of quiet, um, in his case, not super exciting guy, but exactly what I needed. And he would speak into our life, he would speak into our marriage. We ended up with about 12 couples we met for two, three years, same 12 couples, we talked about everything from our sex life to our finances to everything. We opened up in that meeting and it was a very intimate, kind of uh, transparent meeting where people just shared and we got advice, we got prayed for. If we, had a, if we were in a conflict, we just, with those 12 couples right there, it was like group counseling. And we just shared what was on our heart and what our conflict was and Art would speak into our life and, and his, his wife, Kathy, and, and it was wonderful. And then we moved. Uh, I had a nervous breakdown. I've told that story. wrote a book about it. And I, I still say, if you, if you go through something hard, write a book about it. It won't help you, but at least you'll have money. <laughs> Better to be rich and miserable than poor and miserable. It's one of my mottos that's going to say that on my tombstone. Because at least you can go shopping, right, ladies? And so we moved, uh, we had, I had a nervous breakdown about a year and a half until I was uh, really seriously messed up, and so we moved to this little town called Lewiston, probably most of you wouldn't even know where that is, and then uh, 900 people, we moved from San Jose, California to 900 people. I remember I couldn't sleep because you, there was no noise. I remember like, there were, like Eric was talking about silence today, like it was, there was no noise, and uh, so, and I, for a year, we didn't know anybody there, and I worked in a shop. As a matter of fact, the guy I worked for, when I told him I was moving, I sold my house, he sold his house, and moved to Weaverville and started a shop, so I worked for the same guy there. And I was like, now I was in the middle of one of the worst situations in my life with my nervous breakdown, you know, a wife with uh, one, one little baby, and living in a place we didn't know, and... Um, trying to, you know, trying to transition from the big city to a, a little tiny town, and it was really difficult. And I, and I had never since I was since I received Jesus, I was never without a spiritual dad. And I would call Art on the phone sometimes, but it wasn't the same. Didn't really understand what I was going through, the place I lived. And so I started praying every day, like I mean, passionately. Lord, you got to give me a father. 
You've got to give me a father. You know, if you've never had a father, then you don't know what you're missing. <laughs> but if you had a spiritual father, you know, like, you're living without connection. And so it was probably a year went by, and I, one morning I was laying underneath this green Jeep, and I was crying, and I said, Lord, I need a father. I need a spiritual father that was speaking in my life. And the Lord said to me, the man who owns this Jeep will be your father. I'm like, whew, hope he's a Christian, you know? Because I had met him. And I got, out, I got out from underneath the Jeep, and there was a fish sticker on it. I'm like, least the car saved, you know? So at the end of the evening, this man, probably 20 years my senior, he came to pick up his Jeep, and I was so nervous. I, I remember it was like my first date. I was like, I explained the whole bill to him, and he thanked me like four times. It took me like 15 minutes to explain the bill to him. Then I walked him out to his Jeep, and I'm like, you know, I'm like an orphan, you know, like a freaking orphan. Like, He's going to leave, and I'm never going to see him again. Like, we live in Weaverville. Like, I couldn't possibly disappear. And so finally, he, you know, starts his Jeep up and says goodbye. I'm still standing at the driver's door. And he starts to back up, and I knock on the window. And he, he you know, rolls the window down, and I said, the man, I was underneath your car, and God told me the man who owns this Jeep will be your father. Are you a Christian? He turned his car off and got out and put his arms around me and said, I would love to be your father. And that man is named Bill Derryberry. And he's still one of my very closest friends and my spiritual father. In fact, he moved to Reading last year. I think he's 87. And so I have uh, always had a spiritual father. Then, of course, Bill Johnson came into my life about a year later, like Moses. So, I, and two polar opposite, you know, men in my life. Bill Derrybray was like very, like very, uh, like tells you what he's thinking. Very, ex, you know, extroverted, very, uh, not, not in any way controlling, but definitely tells you what's on his mind. I remember one time when I would get, when I'd get really depressed, I would go buy something. And the worse my depression, the bigger thing I'd buy. And we didn't have any extra money, so it wasn't good, you know. I was living on MasterCard. And so one day I got really discouraged, and I'm like, I'm going to go buy a Jeep. So I drove down to Reading to the Jeep dealer, only, you know, told my wife, and she's like, okay. So I get down there, and uh, over the loudspeaker at the Jeep dealer, I hear Chris Valentin to the front desk. They pronounced my name right. Chris, I freaked out. I thought, oh, no, something's wrong at home. And I ran to the phone. And I picked it up, and I, he doesn't say hi. He says, what are you doing? It's Bill Derryberry. I, I said, I am I, I. Down here. Where are you at? Like, he has to know where I'm at. He called the dealership. I'm not the Jeep dealer. And he goes, get your butt home, and hangs up on me. That was it. You can't tell me what to do. Okay, I'm going home. And we, has had, uh, we had a really beautiful relationship, and I, I really appreciated him. And, and my wife and I, we had an agreement, like, if, I, if we weren't getting along, like, we could, like, go call Bill and tell him. So I never called him for her, but she called several times for me. 
we had lunch every Friday. So he'd be like, hey, how's your marriage? I'm like, it's going good. He's like, how's your marriage? I'm like, pretty good. And like, how's your marriage? I'm not sure. <laughs> Kathy call you and he's like, you're being a butthead at home. I don't think it's my fault. Oh, good. That was not a good thing to say. And, you know, the challenge I have because of my experience is that I really, you know, Jesus never said make Christians. He said make disciples. And, and I want to tell you, like, this is not necessarily the opinion of this house, but I struggle with the gospel of salvation because I believe that Jesus taught us the gospel of the kingdom. You know, I don't think you'll find a place in the Bible where someone raised their hand to receive Jesus or prayed a prayer. And the challenge I have isn't raising your hand or praying a prayer. By the way, I told you that that's how I received Jesus. In the end, I raised my hand, I prayed a prayer. As long as we understand that that's, that's, the, that's the wedding, but it's not the marriage. And the challenge I have is, is, is that sometimes we, we sell that as if somebody prayed a prayer and then they followed Jesus. And I'd propose that lots of people pray to prayer and never follow Jesus. And the challenge with that is you meet them on a plane or in some troublesome place, and we all have done this, and they tell us their story, and you're like, you need Jesus. They go, I've already done that. And what they mean is that somebody convinced them to pray a prayer. And evangelism becomes getting people talked into praying a prayer. You understand, I don't have any problem with people praying a prayer as long as we don't think that they're actually following Jesus just because they prayed a prayer. And some people that, what they call evangelism, in my mind, is manipulation. They get someone strapped in a seat right next to them and they badger them till they finally repeat a prayer. And like, I led this guy to the Lord. I'm like, maybe you did, but a lot of people don't like conflict. A lot of people don't know how to set boundaries and say, hey, I actually don't want to do that. And all I'm saying is, I'm not against praying a prayer. I'm against not discipling people who pray a prayer. And in my mind, sometimes it's better that they don't pray a prayer until they're ready to be discipled. They're ready to be actually followers of Jesus. Can you imagine Jesus in a crowd saying, how many of you would like to, like to be Christians? Raise your hand. Good, Okay. Pray a prayer. Pray this prayer. Jesus, I think the prayer is fine, but prayer has replaced discipleship. Okay, it's going to get worse. <laughs> Another part of the challenge for me is that we teach people that discipleship or following Jesus is about knowing your Bible. Now, before I go on, I know where this is going to go because we're streaming, so I know how ugly this is going to get. And I, I actually thought about whether or not, I put it in red, so whether or not I'm going to do this or not. But I think it's important. Because, and I, by the way, I read the Bible twice a day, so probably more than most of you who disagree with my comment. <laughs> Funny how you can disagree and still not read your Bible. Protest for, because prayer is not in school and then, get, and then not pray in school. So it's just, not even pray at home. But my challenge is, is that First of all, in the first century, when people received Christ, there was no Bible to read except for the Old Testament. And the truth is, is that even if you had a copy of the Old Testament, which would be very rare because there was no printing press, you probably couldn't read it anyway. Because reading was not a skill that the average person needed 
in the agricultural age. So the stigma of being illiterate was not there in the first century. People didn't read documents and there wasn't, there wasn't books to read and there, you know, you didn't, there was no fiction books or people didn't write books. There was, I, I'm saying, there, of course there was a few, but there was no printing press. So the whole idea that you read books for entertainment or you read the Bible, I mean, you didn't read the Bible. And that's why they come to Sabbath day, you know, Saturday, typically the Old Covenant, and people, they, they literally came to church synagogue for eight hours while the priests read the Bible to them. <laughs> and you can imagine how exciting that was because that that's the only connection you have to the Bible is what happens on Sabbath day. So of course you're going to sit there for eight hours and be totally interested because you're, reading, you're hearing the word of God for the, not for the first time, but for once a week. And, most, and you wouldn't even typically have a whole Old Testament you might have the book of Genesis, the book of Isaiah. Not very few people would, even priests would have the entire Old Testament. They'd probably have the first five books of the Bible they've memorized and so on and so forth. And it's one of the reasons why they memorized the Bible because it's so hard to have the whole thing in print. So the New Testament, you know, how many know the New Testament wasn't even all assembled till like 300, somebody would know. But two or 300 years after Christ, before they took letters and assembled it into what we would call the New Testament. So what I'm getting at, you're saying you shouldn't read the Bible. Of course you should read the Bible. Like this is one of, my, one of the main things I taught everyone I disciple because it's what Art told me. You taught me. You read the Bible every day. I think it's important. But what I'm getting at is lots of people think that because they know the Bible, they know God. And I can tell you, if that was true, the Pharisees would have rocked. And the other thing I'll say is that some of the hardest people to lead to Christ are people who know the Bible and don't know God. And now we have the English Bible in, I don't know, at least 43 versions. Like when I was studying uh, for the, um, to, to uh, write the book, Fashion and the Rain, I read 43 versions of the Bible. So I know there's at least 43 versions of the Bible. And we argue over each line. I mean, in Facebook, if you post something, like a meme with one line in it, they're like, everybody gets on, they're like, well, that's what, how about this? And and people fight over one verse. You're not even knowing where I'm going. I'm simply saying that we think that people repeat verses and then you got saved. And I'd propose the people who got saved in the first century didn't have those verses to repeat. They actually had to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And sometimes people are committed to a Bible that they didn't have and not committed to the Holy Spirit that all they had. Like when we're talking about being led by the Spirit, we think, well, the Spirit led me to this verse. And by the way, I'm all good for that. I just want you to understand, I'm only talking about emphasis, all right? I'm not saying anything you heard tonight is like, well, he's saying this wrong. No, I'm saying emphasis. I'm saying, we are, well, the Holy Spirit led me to, you know, Isaiah 42. That's awesome. But remember that the first century disciple probably didn't have that advantage. So they actually had to be led by the Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit actually taught them. Like 1 John, 1 John writes the book of John, John writes the book of 1 John, and he says, you have no need for anyone to teach you, for his spirit that's within you teaches you. And John is teaching them. 
And he's saying, but I'm, I'm writing this book to you, but it's the Holy Spirit whose anointing is teaching you. And people had to really depend on the Holy Spirit because they didn't have much of the Bible. And they didn't hear much of the Bible. Relationship was super important. That you were connected to someone who knew God when you didn't because you didn't have, you probably didn't have at least what we have. In Acts chapter 15, the Gentiles are getting saved. This is very interesting. I still don't know, still don't quite understand it, but the Gentiles are getting saved. You have to understand, these Gentiles are not Judeo-Christian ethic or Judeo-Christian, they don't, these people did not, we're not raised in Western culture where whether or not you believe in the Bible, you know there is one. For instance, you'd be hard pressed in America to find someone who doesn't know the story of Adam and Eve. I didn't say believe in it, but know it. You would be hard pressed to find someone who doesn't know who David and Goliath is. Or to know who Moses is. I'm not saying believe it, but know it. But in Greek culture, the Bible was not central to anything. So they would not know when the, when the Greeks, the, so, so when the Gentiles are getting saved, these are not American Gentiles, these are not European Gentiles, modern 21st century, 20th century European Gentiles, these are Romans and Greeks, none of which would have ever been exposed to the Bible. Or let's say 99.9% of them. So when they get saved, immediately the Pharisees, now you gotta understand, in the book of Acts, the Pharisees are now the good guys. Because when Jesus, okay, so when, when Jesus rose from the dead, lots of the Pharisees actually received Christ. And what was special about those guys is that they're the only ones who know the Bible, i.e. the Apostle Paul who writes 13 books of the Bible. Why does he credit with so many books? Because not very many Pharisees, not very many people actually knew the Bible. So these Pharisees start getting saved. Now these are good Pharisees, not bad Pharisees. They're actually following Jesus. They actually know the Bible. And of course, they think, hey, if you're a Gentile, you need to be circumcised. You need to know the law. Now they're not like trying to, you understand where I'm going? I'm not saying they're, they're saying, you just have to be circumcised. I'm saying they only have the Old Testament. So they're like, hey guys, you guys came out of Greek mythology. You believe in Hercules and Artemis and Diana and all these gods. You need to read the Bible so you actually know that our God is one God. And so they have this big council where the apostles all come together in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And Paul's there and Peter's there, and James is there, and 11 of the disciples are there. And they, have, they, and, and they stand up and they begin to give testimonies. Paul and Barnabas stand up and they say, the Gentiles are receiving, receiving Christ just the way we did. Remember, they thought that the Jews were the only people who were gonna follow God. Am I boring you? So they, so, so Paul and Silas, I'm sorry, I think it was Paul and Barnabas, 
they stand up and they start giving testimony. God did miracles with them. He saved them and he healed them and he, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And Peter stands up and he goes, I was at Cornelius' house. Let me tell you what happened there. I was preaching and in the middle of my preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on them just the way he fell on us and they started speaking in tongues. And so we baptized them and, and here's the outcome. And so the Pharisees, remember the good guy Pharisees, they're like, yes, and we need to teach them the Bible. They need to be circumcised. They need to follow the, the Old Testament. And Peter stands up and says, listen, that didn't work for us. We did all that, and we didn't know God. And ultimately, they write a letter to the Gentiles and only require them to do four things. Three of them have to do with what they eat, and the last one was don't fornicate. It tells them nothing about reading the Bible. This is the first century church. Valentin, what are you emphasizing? I'm saying what they did do is they brought them into connection and community, and they discipled them. And connection with people and connection with the Holy Spirit was paramount. Are you with me? Because without a connection with people and without a connection with the Holy Spirit, you really didn't have this. Very little of this. And I'm just trying to point out how different 21st century Christianity is because now we agree to a philosophy we don't even actually live. Can I live with my girlfriend and be a Christian? Yeah, but you can't live with your girlfriend and follow Jesus. Because he ain't going that way. <laughs> I'm saying Christianity does not mean following Jesus anymore. People are like, I live this lifestyle, I identify with this sexual orientation, which the Bible calls sin, and I'm a Christian. I'm like, you might be a Christian, but you're not a follower of Jesus because you can't follow Jesus unless you repent. That's me, you, and all of us. That's not, I'm not, you're just saying, people, I'm saying us. You can't live in sin and follow Jesus because he ain't going that way. So Christ, being a Christian, we're making Christians, but I'm not sure we're making disciples. And unfortunately, listen, you're, I, know, I know most of you are sitting here and you're like, isn't making Christians making disciples? Yes, it should be synonymous. I'm pointing out it is not anymore. I meet people all over the place. So do you. I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah, what do you do? Well, I'm da-da-da. And I could name things, but you hear them too. I'm like, has anyone sat you down? I can imagine my conversations with Art or Bill Derryberry if I had any of those thoughts. They would last about an hour. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is in the middle of this great revival that's just begun. They're like two years into this great revival. It says this, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. Did you notice the four things they were dedicating themselves? The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. Isn't it odd that, that Luke noted they were fellowship and breaking of bread 
before prayer? I'm not saying he was making a list like number one was. I'm simply saying, isn't it odd that we think of spirit being spiritual like they, they, they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. But he says they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread. In other words, what they were committed to is having meals together, hanging out together, listening to the apostles teach, and then praying about it. Do you see a difference? They were in community. Okay, let's talk a little bit about discipleship. Acts chapter 9, verse 26. Discipleship is about belonging. I believe, listen, people belong, believe, and behave. Sometimes we're trying to get people to believe or behave, but they actually don't belong anywhere. It is really quiet in here. <laughs> no, that's okay. I, I, I get it. I, I, I must be like super boring or like, or you really disagree or something. You're right off the money. Thank you. Acts chapter 9, verse 26. So let, let's just, uh, let me set this up for you. Saul, this is uh, who will become the Apostle Paul. Saul is a Pharisee, and he is ravaging the church. And he's doing it out of the zeal for God. He thinks he's doing God a favor by killing Christians. And so he has, you know, uh, stoned Stephen, and he is the leader. He has, he's, the, he's the leader of this whole sect of the Pharisees. And so he's leading, he's going from house to house. He's taking people out of their homes, stoning them in the streets. That's what he's doing, arresting them, stoning them. And then he has this encounter. You know about this encounter. He, he hears this voice. He sees this light. He ends up on the ground. And he, has, uh, and, and the, and he hears this voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And then he he's blinds him. The Lord blinds him. He, he, he sends him to this guy's house. He gets this guy named Ananias, who's a disciple. He says, God says, Ananias, Ananias, tells him this whole story and says, I want you to go pray for Saul. The guy's like, oh no. Oh no, I'm not praying for him. And the Lord says, no, he's a brother. I want you to go pray for him. And I want you to give him this prophetic word. So he goes and prays for him. His eyes are open. He has this prophetic word. You're going to be, you're going to speak to kings. You're going to speak to rulers. You're going to speak to Gentiles and Jews in my name. And so Saul immediately, he is, you know, he has this crazy encounter. He receives Christ and he goes out and he tries to make it happen and nothing works. They, you know, the Gentiles don't like him because they're still afraid of him. The Jews don't like him because it seems like he's changed sides. So he's nowhere man in nowhere land. And, and the disciples, the, the apostles, the 11 apostles who are leading this movement still in Jerusalem, they're all terrified of Saul because he's like the first century ISIS guys. So they're like, we don't trust this guy's saved. So, it, and so that's kind of set up. Verse 26, when Saul came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were afraid of him, not believing he was a disciple. But Barnabas, everybody say, but Barnabas. but Barnabas. But Barnabas took a hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described them how he'd seen the Lord on the road and how he'd talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And this is a beautiful story. I'm probably not going to take too much time, but Barnabas takes a hold of Saul. And for the next 13 years, Luke records, and Barnabas and Saul went and preached here. And Barnabas and Saul 
were sent out by the apostles. And Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. And then suddenly in the 13th chapter, they encounter this warlock named Bar-Jesus. And when they encounter him, instead of Barnabas taking the lead, Saul takes the lead, and Saul blinds the guy. Why does God blind the guy? How did Saul see? God blinded Saul so he could see. And Saul blinds the guy, prophesies to him, and they speak to the governor. And from that day on, his name is changed to Paul, and he's mentioned first throughout the rest of the Bible. Saul, I mean, sorry, Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas went here. For the rest of the Bible, it's Barnabas, I'm sorry, it's Paul and Barnabas. They go and they plant all these churches. They take young Mark with them. Mark is Barnabas' cousin. They plant all these churches. It's, you know, you can imagine how treacherous it is. Mark runs off. He's a young man, probably 17, 18. He gets afraid. He goes home. And about several years later, Paul says, hey, Barnabas, let's go back and strengthen the churches we, we planted. And Barnabas said, good, let's take Mark with us. And Paul is so adamant. We are not taking Mark. He is a coward. I am not having cowards with me. And, and the, the argument gets so bad that Barnabas takes Mark with him. And Paul takes Silas. And Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, goes with Paul. So we know all about Paul and Silas's exploits. But we know nothing about Barnabas and Mark's exploits. But here's what's interesting. Barnabas writes no books of the Bible, but he takes a hold of a former Pharisee and he mentors him for 13 years. And that man becomes the great apostle Paul and writes 13 books of the New Testament. This great apostle Paul wants nothing to do with Mark, but Barnabas takes a hold of Mark and mentors him for another 14 years and he writes the book of Mark. Without Barnabas, 14 books of the New Testament are not there. And what I'm getting at is most of us are just one Barnabas short of being a miracle worker. This is what it means to actually disciple people, is that we take a hold of them. We, they, we say, you belong to me. I don't mean in a possessive or weird way or a cult way. I mean, I care about you. What happens to you matters to me. I'm here for you. Are you with me? Like, this is not brain surgery. This is not, well, I don't know how to do it. Do you know how to love people? Well, I think so. Do that. We're talking about caring. We're talking about being there in times of need. We're talking about being there in in times of celebration. We're talking about a person someone can get on the phone and call and for some advice. We're not talking about being a genius. We're not talking about being Bill Johnson. We're not talking about being famous. We're just talking about being a mate, as they say in Australia. In 1 Samuel 22, David has already killed Goliath, and he is being chased now by Saul. And he goes to the cave of Adullam, and when he gets there, his brothers and father are there, and several people, and it says this, and everyone who is in distress, and everyone who is in debt, and everyone who is discontent gathered to him, and he became their captain. Now there were about 400 men with him. So David becomes the captain of 400 people that nobody else wants. Really cool story. I wish I had more time to tell you, but 
David was a giant killer, 1 Samuel 17. He attracts discontent, broken, in debt people that no one wants. Twelve years later, those men kill four, uh, they kill the four brothers of Goliath. David is a giant killer. He reproduces giant killers. David goes after the four brothers. The bro- one of the giants, one of the other four giants, get a hold of, jo- of David. His men have to come in and rescue them, rescue him. They tell David, you stay in the back from this day on. We will fight the giants. They kill the four giants, Goliath's other four brothers. That's why David originally had five smooth stones. Not because he thought he'd miss, but because he thought his brothers would get engaged. They become giant killers. And at the end of David's life, it says, and these are the final words of King David. And it goes on to say, these are the names of the mighty men who belonged to David. And it names 33 mighty men who belonged to David. And here's my point. Why were they mighty? Because you always reproduce around you what you have within you. Discipleship isn't just teaching people things, it's reproducing yourself. And David took these men, and these men who were discontent, these men who were, who were, who were broke, these men who were outcasts, nobody wanted them. He became their captain, and then he became their father. And they, listen to this, and they belonged to David. These are the men who belonged to King David. There's something, um, are, you, are, you, are you getting this at all? Not as offensive as the first part. What I'm getting at is that discipleship is about belonging to someone. I, I understand, I know, I grew up in the shepherding movement. I understand people get really weird. And they're like, you know, it's like, you, you know, before you can go to the bathroom, you got to, you know, call me. You know, if you're going to buy a car, you got to call me. It gets really controlling and weird. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm just talking about a healthy way you connect with people and you're like, listen, your success is my success. I'm going to pour into your life and my, in you, I'm going to measure my success by how successful you are. Luke chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus said this, a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he is fully trained, becomes like his teacher. The goal isn't that you'd know what I know. The goal is that you would be who I am. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. Oh, this is going to get a little rough water again. Paul writes this. I do not write these things to shame you. He's writing to the Corinthians. But to admonish you as beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ I became your father through the gospel. For this reason, what reason? Because I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I, oh I'm sorry, next verse says, Therefore I exhort you to be imitators of me. Therefore I exhort you to be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent you Timothy. For what reason? So that you can imitate me. This is not a great message I can see. For this reason I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. 
but I will come to you soon, and if the Lord wills, I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist of words, but power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, and a spirit of gentleness? Oh, that's not a good 21st century verse. Now, I don't know how you grew up, but I grew up with people saying, don't follow me, follow Jesus. If following you isn't following Jesus, I don't know where you're going. If we're down at the Marie Callers, you've never been here before, and we're going to go to church, I say, follow me. Why? Because I'm going to where you're supposed to be going. I'm like, don't follow me, follow the map. We have reacted to strange people and cults to the place where we don't even have connection anymore. Paul said, you may have many teachers, but you don't have many fathers. What is the goal of teachers? The teacher is, a goal of teaching is you would know what I know. But the goal of fathers is that you'd be who I am. I'm going to send you Timothy. Listen, he goes on, first he says, I, I, therefore I tell you, imitate me. Then he says, I'm going to send you Timothy. He is my son. He knows my ways. Why is that important? He'll teach you my ways, which are in Christ, so that you can imitate me. Now there's some folks in your congregation, they're saying they're your father. Now they can be your teacher, but they're not your father. I'm your father. Now when I come, I'll see. Not their words, but if they have any power. And by the way, if you want to read on, especially 2 Corinthians, Paul continues to defend his fatherhood in their life. And he's like, I have authority in your life because I'm your father. They can teach you, but they cannot be your father because I'm your father. You're like, that sounds weird. It's in the Bible. What's the point? Discipleship is about belonging. But it's also about discipline. It's also about having someone in your life that can actually correct you. He says, how do you want me to come to you? Are you going to repent and be humble? Or am I going to come with a rod? Like, we should have leaders in our life that we trust. The Bill Derryberries who said, where are you? Get home. He's trying to control me. No, he's trying to make sure I don't do something stupid that takes 48 months to pay off. He's speaking into my life because I've opened the door for him. Not because he's pushed his way in or because he's manipulated his authority in my life. It's because I said, come in and speak into my life. If you see me doing something dumb, speak to it. I remember uh, many years ago, this is probably 12 years ago, I, uh, Danny Silk um, used to work here. By the way, I led Danny to the Lord and mentored him. I still remember casting out a demon and G- Danny was one week old in the Lord and he's like, this is like the book of Acts. <laughs> it was so fun. My other 11 disciples ran. <laughs> and Danny stood on my deck, he's like, this is like the book of Acts. He was so excited that he actually saw a demon. <laughs> but I remember, uh, I remember being in my office and Danny uh, 
says, hey, come over to my office. So I, I stand, I'm standing in his doorway, and he says, hey, I, I'm, gonna, I'm flying out in 15 minutes, so i got to say this quick. I said, okay. He said, I see, there's, I see that there's arrogance in your life. It's really affecting you. And I'm like, arrogance in my life? What are you talking about? He's like, well, and he gave me three instances in the last month in which he said, that was arrogant, that was prideful and arrogant. And I'm like, well, I don't think so. And anyway, he said, he said this to me. He goes, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm giving you some feedback. You go work it out. So one of the things I used to teach, I still teach, is unless you trust someone more than you trust yourself, you can't get out of deception because the nature of deception is you don't know you're deceived. If you know you're deceived, that's not called deception. It's called stupidity. <laughs> How many have ever done that before? I certainly have. So I go home that night, and I, I don't tell Kathy because she'll really agree with Danny for sure. <laughs> so I go to bed that night, and I can't sleep. I'm laying there. I'm thinking what Danny said you know, about arrogance and pride. And these are, here's three circumstances in the last month that I was, you know, he said, I was there when you did this. I was there when you did that. I was there when you did that. was just like, he said, <laughs> you know, Danny's so funny. He's like, and pride was seeping out of your ears. <laughs> wow thought it was wax <laughs> so I was laying at, uh, awake at night and I was just you know like I was actually defending myself you know have you ever argued with somebody who's not there and like you argue their side and then you argue your side then you argue their side and you always win right you're like yes and I got him with that one and if you can't if you can't win that argument then you think of things that he's bad at and you let me tell you what you did so I'm laying there doing that and the Lord said to me, you know, you said that if you don't trust someone more than you trust yourself, you can't get out of deception. So do you believe that or do you just teach other people that? So I said to the Lord, Lord, I really, I really believe that, but I really think Danny's wrong. And he said, well, is it possible you could be wrong? Yeah, but I don't think I am. And the Lord said, well, you could be deceived according to your doctrine. So I laid there, and I, and I thought, and this is what I thought to myself. I thought, does Danny love me? Yes. Does he, has he always been my friend? Yes. Have I always trusted him in the life of other people and his counsel? Yes. So I said to the Lord, Lord, this doesn't feel true, but I, I agree with Danny because I trust him. And as soon as I said that in my mind, in my spirit, I immediately saw my pride. As a matter of fact, I saw several other circumstances he didn't know about. Our next staff meeting, I opened the staff meeting by saying, I have to confess, and shared the ones that my staff were in and said, I want to apologize for my arrogance. I had to write three letters to speakers who were here. It wasn't fun. But it's a whole lot better than living a life of deception. In Matthew 13, verse 20, Jesus is telling the story, the sword and the seed. I know you know this story well. And then at the end, he walks away and he leaves the audience without any understanding of what the parable means. And the disciples are like, hey, 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 what does the parable mean? And the Lord begins to tell them about each of the seeds and where it was planted and what it meant. And he gets to this one, he said, the one on whom the seed was sown on rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately he receives it with joy. 
And yet he has no firm root in himself. He has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. It's, you know, I have read that verse for many, many, many years. And it has really troubled me because I've experienced that. Like I used to personally disciple several people, uh, about 13 or 14. Danny was in that group for a while. And out of that group, I think only four of them walk with the Lord today. And I have laid awake at night. I mean, you know, three of those guys were the head of my youth group, led the junior high youth group, led a campus club, had a radical encounter with God. I mean, I could go on and on and tell you. I mean, one of, one of those guys that I'm thinking of that doesn't walk with God, doesn't, he's, he's an atheist today, a professed atheist today. He, has two, he had two daughters at the time. One of his daughters got, got stuck to the floor. She was eight years old in a, in a renewal night, eight-year-old, seeing visions in a trance. The two of us picked her up, put her in his car, he drove home, and she stayed in the trance all night long, woke up in the morning with stories of heaven. And that man does not walk with the Lord today, does not believe in God today. And I was like, so crazy, like, the story, this man receives, immediately receives the word with joy, but because he, quote this, because he has no firm root in himself, as soon as there's affliction, as soon as there's anything negative, he falls away. And I'm like, I had eight people like that that I poured my life into for years. And I always wondered, what does that mean? And one day I was, uh, I was, I went to, I was um, traveling, I was in my hotel and I turned on the television and it was on, on a channel. And as soon as the channel came on, it was some guy preaching, which I don't watch preaching too much on TV. Rather watch, you know, Gladiator. <laughs> but as soon as the TV came on, a man made this statement. He said, instruction, no, he said, yeah, he said, instruction means structures inside of you. That's all I said. I mean, he was, he was in the middle of his message. I turned it on, and as soon as the sound came on, he said, instruction, instruction, means structures inside of you. And I turned it off. And I'm like, that's amazing. And I got my Bible program out, and I'm like, whoa. The word of God, the sower went out and sowed seed. The seed is the word of God, right? Are you with me? Did I lose you? And the word seed, the word seed in the Greek is the word sperma. We get our word sperm from it. Are you with me? Paul said, I'm, he said, I'm laboring until Christ is formed in you. When we're preaching, what are we doing? We're releasing the sperm of God. We're releasing life. It's not just words. It actually has power to release life, right? How many know there's no such thing as an indoor plant? You're like, what does this have to do with anything? <laughs> we went to Hawaii the first time probably 15 years ago, and we, were, we were, got to rent a car, and Kathy and I were together, and we were, we were driving out of the airport in Hawaii in, um, on Kona, and as we were driving, she's like, pull over, pull over. 
I'm like, what? Did we hit something? She's like, see that tree? And this is huge, like, tree, like, half the size of this room. She's like, see that tree? I'm like, yeah. She's like, that's the tree we have in our bathroom. <laughs> we stopped four times. By the fifth time, I'm like, no, I get it. That's the tree we have in our front room. And there are all these huge, massive trees. And I realized there's no such thing as an indoor plant. There's only plants that were, that were created for a certain environment. And when you take them out of their environment, you have to create an artificial environment for them to grow in because they were made for another environment. How many of you know that the word of God is seed coming from another kingdom? In order for that to live in the womb of your soul, it has to have an environment that's safe so to grow. So how do I create safety? Think about this. The word instruction. Now, I used to think, now when that guy said, instruction means structures inside of you, I turned the TV off immediately, and I, said, and I looked up the word instruction, and I looked up the word teaching. And I'm like, whoa, I thought that teaching and instruction were the same thing. But in the Greek and Hebrew, they're a very different thing. Instruction, listen to this. Instruction, it's the, in Hebrew, it's the word milsar, M-U-S-A-R. It means discipline, chastening, correction, warning, reproof, punishment. In the Greek, it means to educate by chastening, chastise you. It means to learn by chastening, punishment, or discipline. Okay, follow me. In, he, in Proverbs 4.12, on 5.12 it says, you say, how I hated instruction, my heart spurned reproof. How I hated instruction, how my heart spurned reproof. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say, instruction, I'm building structures inside of me. How do I build structures inside of me? Through instruction, in structures, structures building inside of me. How do I actually build instruction? Through discipline, through correction. Are you with me? Look at this one. Proverbs uh, 4, 4, 1. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father. Give attention that you may gain understanding. When I receive instruction, structures are built inside of me so I can receive teaching, which is information. Teaching means, in the Greek, information. When I'm teaching someone, something's being formed in them. But in order for the seed to actually grow in them, they actually have to have a womb called structure. What I'm getting at is this, the word disciple comes from the word discipline because in order to receive instruction, in order to receive teaching, you have to first have structure and structure comes from discipline. It doesn't come from teaching. Uh, okay, let me make it simple. You come to school ministry. I just learned this like three years ago. What I realized is that one of the reasons why people learn in a school of ministry as opposed to sending the same material to them at home is because at school ministry, you're required to be there, let's say at 12.30. The fact that you have to submit to a schedule you don't want to be at is discipline. 
The fact that if someone says, let's stand up and worship, you're like, I don't feel like it. But you stand up and you worship when you don't feel like it. What's happening is through, are you with me? Through discipline, you're building a structure. Someone says, do your homework, and you're like, I don't want to do this homework. Read this book. I, I don't want to read this book. Hey, I say to students often, if you knew if you could do this for free, you would have done it at home. But what happens is, is someone, I say makes me, obviously you don't have to do anything, you can leave. But my point is, some, one of your leaders says, you have to read this book by Thursday. And you're like, I read this book by Thursday. I don't want to read this book. Okay, I read it anyway. And what I'm getting at is that the resistance you have to doing it, but the fact that you do it anyway is actually building in you a structure that can hold information. Because part of being a disciple is discipline. That's why it's called disciple. Somebody says, hey, if you want to know the Lord, you need to do this. You're like, I'm not going to a prayer meeting at 6 o'clock in the morning. And you end up there and you're like, I don't even want to be here. I don't even like prayer meetings. But you're there even though you may not enjoy it, you're like, something's happening. Yes, you're building a structure that can hold the teaching that comes from information. And the one thing I look back with my, my disciples that I, I was leading, those, you know, I was very young in those days, is that I realized that none of, those, none of those friends of mine, none of those disciples that fell away, they all had this one thing in common. I've thought about it for hours and hours. None of them could be corrected. As a matter of fact, I attracted them because they were rebellious. And none of them could be corrected. Even the guy whose daughter was on the floor. I tell him something, I was like, no, that attitude you had today when you're, he's, oh, that's not my problem. You know, I mean, every single time I tried to bring any kind of direction to him, it was an argument. And I'm like, if you don't, Discipline yourself. You don't have roots in yourself. And if you don't have roots in yourself, there's nothing for the sperma to take a hold of. Here's the challenge. We live in a culture that values feeling above facts. We are doing the opposite of discipline. We are doing the opposite of discipling. We're saying, if I feel it, I should do it. And if I feel it, I am it. And I'd like to propose, you are not doing how you feel. How you feel is not how you're doing. And how you feel isn't who you are. As a matter of fact, feeling one way and doing another is the way you build instruction. Let me say this. No one can hold a job doing that. I don't feel like going to work today. I don't feel like working. I don't feel like waiting on the customer. Like it is in being in community where we're serving people when we feel like it and when we don't that actually creates the, strat the structure inside so that we can receive something that will take root in us. I'll give you one more. Discipleship means believing in people before they deserve it. I am the product of three men, four including my grandfather, who believed in me way before I deserved it. I don't know if I deserve it today, but I will say this. 
If you don't think I deserve it today, you should have seen me several years ago. If you think this is rustic, this is way cleaned up. But I am, I am the product of someone who believed in me way before I deserved it. Let me tell you, when I had my nervous breakdown, I had, my, my issue was irrational fear. I mean, I was afraid of everything. I couldn't, I had claustrophobia. It could be snowing and I had to drive with the windows down. I couldn't get in an elevator. I couldn't go into a public building. I couldn't stay in a hotel. I was afraid of everything. I thought I was gonna die. I thought my wife was gonna leave me. I mean, listen, phobia, they didn't even have a title for what I had. I had phobias about phobias. I had fear about being fearful. I didn't trust myself, I didn't trust anybody. And when I met Bill, here's how he introduced me after knowing me for a month to a friend. This is Chris Valentin. He goes where angels fear to tread. That's how he used to introduce me. And he'd say, this is the most courageous man I've ever met. He didn't know, I was terrified. But you know what he was doing? He was releasing sperm of the kingdom in me. He was saying, he was calling things that were not as though they were. And what was happening is, is that I, because he took a hold of me, I'm like, I want to please this man. And I was going where I was afraid to go until I was no longer afraid to go there. I led home group for 20 years. I'll, I'll try to say this as clean as possible. For 17 years, it was always on Wednesday night, for 17 years, 15 minutes before people got there, I was on the toilet. I never got to a home group on time. There it was at my house, and I was always in the bathroom. Because I had so much anxiety about teaching that I would be sick every Wednesday night. I have students all the time, they say, how long did it take you before you didn't have anxiety? 15 years. It was 15 years before I actually sat in a meeting at 7 o'clock ready for the home group to get there because I wasn't sick. And it was all due to anxiety. People were like, I don't think I'm supposed to teach. I, I have a lot of anxiety. Well, welcome to the kingdom. <laughs> welcome to the kingdom. Well, I don't think I'm supposed to do this because I'm afraid. Maybe you're supposed to do it because you're afraid. Maybe the enemy's resisting you at your point of destiny. I love this. John Maxwell, in his book, the Developing the Leader Within, it's actually on page 99. If you, ever, if you have that book, you want to look it up. He tells a story about the school, and they did this experiment. And they took, they took all the teachers in the school, and they put them in a hat, and they randomly pulled out a teacher's name. And then they took all the students that were in that year class, and they randomly put them all in the hat, and they pulled out, I think it was 30 of them, or maybe it was 20. And they took those students and those teachers, and they put them together, and they said, we chose you because you're an extraordinary teacher. And we gave you the best students. And we want you to have the privilege of teaching the best students. And then they went to the students and they said, we chose you because you're the best students. So we gave you the best teacher in the entire school to teach you this year as a privilege. Those students performed at 30% higher than anyone else in the school. At the end of the year, 
Their scores were 30% higher than every other student in the school. The teacher came in and he said, wow, look what I've done. I have, I have used my skill to teach the best students. And look at how they perform. And they said, we have a confession to make. You weren't the best teacher. We actually chose you randomly out of a hat. And he said, wow, I guess it's a testimony to the students you gave me. He said, we have another secret to tell you. We didn't give you the best students. We chose them randomly out of a hat. And he said, if you chose me randomly and you chose them randomly, then why did they excel? And they said, because you thought they should and they thought they should. See, what happens when you believe in someone is that they begin to believe in themselves. And when they begin to believe in themselves, they begin to overperform because somebody believes in them. See, Jesus believed in people before they deserved it. And that's, you know, Judas in John 12. I won't read it to you because you know the story. But John 12 says that Judas was a thief. He was stealing from the money box. It goes on to say that Jesus made him the keeper of the money or the treasurer of his ministry. Why would you make someone who steals money the treasurer? I mean, wouldn't you make Matthew the treasurer? I mean, he's, he was a former IRS agent, probably knows something about money. Or maybe even Peter, they, they own their own business, probably knows something about money. Why do, you put, why do you make Judas the treasurer when you know he's stealing? I asked that question many times to myself. And one day I realized it's because Jesus trusted people before they deserved it. See, and the culture that created 11 world changers caused one man to hang himself. See, the challenge is we get someone to hang themselves metaphorically, and then we change the culture so we'll never have another Judas, and then wonder why we don't have Peters. See, the same culture that raises up Peters also causes Judases to hang themselves. If you don't have a culture in which Judas could hang himself, you won't have Peters. Do you know Judas and Peter both denied Christ? Judas denied him once, Peter denied him three times. One hung himself and the other became the head of the church. It's really important that you learn how to fail successfully. This is a part of what we do when we disciple people. Like, what do I do? Okay, I'm gonna, I, okay I, I get it. I'm supposed to be discipled and I'm supposed to be discipling somebody. What do I do? I, I invite them over for dinner, then what I do? You begin to ascertain, discover, develop, deploy. Discover. Lord, if you train up a child in the way they should go, then when they're old, they won't depart from it. Lord, give me insight. Because I believe whenever God gives you oversight into someone's life, he gives you insight into their life. And I go, Lord, give me insight into this man's life. Give me insight into this woman's life. And the Lord begins to like, this woman is creative. This, she shall be a dancer or whatever. You, know, you don't even have to know specifically. And you just start, okay, I'm going to expose my disciple to creativity. <laughs> Let's go to an art show. Let's go to a dance. Let's go someplace where you go, that's what I want to do forever. And the first thing I do is discover, and I begin to draw out the noble uh, uh, plans of a man are like deep water, but a man of understanding draws them out. And I begin to help draw out this person. A noble man makes noble plans. By noble plans, he stands. And I'm part of that noble man who helps you make a noble plan so you can stand. 
And I begin to believe in you. And when you have self-doubt and you fail, I don't go, you failed, you just never can do it. I'm like, hey, you're better than that. When you sin, I'm like, what are you doing? You're the child, you're, you're a son of a king. Get out of that mud puddle. I'm not condemning you. I might help you find conviction. I might convince you that what you're doing is wrong. That can all be part of fatherhood, as I explained to you with Bill Derrybray. But I'm not there to condemn you. I'm there to let you know you're better than you're behaving. In 1 Timothy, I'll finish with this verse. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul writes to his son, Timothy. You remember he said, I'm going to send you my son, Timothy. And here's what he writes to Timothy. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech and conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself as an example for those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through the prophetic utterance laid on hands. Take pains with these things. Be totally absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to everyone. Pay close attention to yourself and to your own teaching. Persevere in these things for as you do, you will ensure salvation both to yourself and those who hear you. How many know accountability means account for your ability? It's not called account disability. We're not getting together, we're not getting together with one another so we can talk about all your sins you've ever committed. I remember that we, I had a group for a while. I told you that uh, I, I, we did different things. And we read this book on uh, a particular revivalist and how they started every meeting by confessing their sins. And that was very exciting. <laughs> and so every week we got together and we'd begin by going around and confessing our sins. Because First John says, if you confess your sins to one another, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and can cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But after a while you have to kind of make up sins because you, you know, everyone's confessing. If you didn't do something wrong, you're like, okay, well, I had a bad thought. and You know, it was really sad. And we did that for like six months, and I'm like, you know, I may have worked for them, but I don't think it's working for us. And we switched, you know. I began to learn, like, you know what? When I treat people like sinners, it's amazing how sin-conscious they become and how often they sin. But when I treat people like saints, it's amazing how little they sin and how they behave like saints. And so we started doing this thing, like what gift did God give you and what are you doing with it? I love when Paul writes to Timothy, he's like, you got some gifts, the presbytery laid hands on you. Timothy, what are you doing with them? I want you to take those gifts and I want you to get so good at them that everybody around you goes, he's really getting good at that. He's becoming a good preacher. She's becoming an awesome teacher. You know what? Have you seen the way they're moving in the gifts of the Spirit? And what I'm getting at is Paul holds Timothy accountable for the gifts in his life, not for his sin. When Timothy's afraid, Paul said, you're better than that. God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but love, power, and a sound mind. You know what he says to him before that? I'm mindful of the faith that was in your grandmother. And also, I'm mindful of the faith that was in your mother. And now I see the face in you. Therefore, God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. What's he saying? You're a third generation believer. You're bigger than this. 
What was he doing? He was, in, he was encouraging him. He was giving him courage to move forward. He's like, God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but love, power, and a sound mind. Now, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. What was, Timothy wasn't an evangelist. Paul's like, Timothy, you're in a situation. I need you to evangelize. You can do this. I'm afraid. Your grandmother started this. Your mother, you, you have momentum. Stop acting afraid and be courageous. I love Paul's relationship with Timothy. He corrects them in a positive way, and he reminds him that he's been given gifts that he needs to do something with. Anyway, this is discipleship. This is what it means to disciple, that we get people in our lives. Listen, and I believe all of us need a mentor in our life. I don't care if you're five or you're 65. Like, I believe that we all need people to speak into our lives. Yes, it's going to look different. If you're 40 years old in the Lord, it should look different. We're not bottle feeding you. We're not spoon feeding you. But I still believe we all need to have accountability in our lives. We all need encouragement. We all need connection. When something great happens in our life, we need someone we can pick up the phone and say, hey, this happened. This is amazing. We need people who will celebrate with us. And when we go through a really hard time, we need someone who will mourn with us. They don't always have to have the answer. We don't need the wisest person on earth. We just need someone who truly loves us and connects with us. And I believe that all of us are responsible to disciple other people. Some of you can disciple one. Some of you can disciple a hundred, as well as the person who disciples one. But everyone was equipped to actually help someone on a regular basis. Like, I help the poor person, I go down, that's all great, but I mean, how about if you take a hold of someone and you say, how can I help you? Can I pour into your life? Would it be okay if I poured into your life? And by the way, if it gets weird or controlling or, you know, it's cultish, I'm not talking about any of that. I'm just talking about caring to the place where people love when you show up. Some people bring happiness wherever they go. And some people bring happiness whenever they go. (laughs) And we're all laughing because we have people on both sides of that. And like you want to be that person when they show up, they're like, I'm happy you're in my life. Would you stand? I want to pray for you. Some of you tonight, you're listening, and I know if you're anything like me, you're, you're, you're like, do I do that? How am I doing at that? And, you, and you, this kind of, this, this, you, you look at your gauges when someone shares a message like this. You're like, am I, do I allow people to discipline me? Do I have anybody in my life? Am I afraid of people? Like, oh, my dad abused me. I don't like authority. That scares me. I can't tell you. I, I will get several messages on Facebook, guaranteed, private message, like, my dad abused me. I don't trust authority. I'm like, hey, my dad abused me too. I had two dads who abused me. And I totally understand it. I I say with compassion, I get it, but I also know the benefits of having someone who's more mature than you are speaking into your life. And I am so thankful that I had two abusive biological fathers, not biological, but physical fathers in my life, but I've had four spiritual fathers in my life that have all blessed me and I've never had a bad spiritual dad. Did, did, have I ever had any of them do anything wrong in my life? Of course, they're human. I mean, we're not talking about perfect people. We're talking about people who love God and who are more mature than us. But we're not talking about perfect people. 
And sometimes we're like, well, if Bill Johnson was in my life, I'd trust him too. No, you probably wouldn't. Because if you don't trust people, it doesn't matter what title they have. You just won't trust them. And so I want to really encourage you tonight. I, I mean, this message, I hope it didn't make you feel guilty. I, that wasn't my goal. My goal was like to give you some structure and strategy. Like, what am I actually supposed to be doing? And if you're, you know, and I just want to encourage you, like, if you don't have anyone that you are pouring into, pretty simple, like, you don't start out by saying, you know, I'd like to take a hold of you, like the Apostle Paul did to Timothy. I'm like, I wouldn't do any of that. I'm like, let's have some coffee. Would you drink coffee? Could we meet tomorrow at nine? And we just start getting to know each other. And, you know, that, I call it courting. We might do that for two or three months and find, do we have a bond? Does it feel like this is organic? Does this feel strange or weird? Or do we have something in common? Do we enjoy being together? And you know, and if the first one doesn't work, you know, there's a lot of people out there. And we live in a fatherless generation. It's not gonna be very hard to find someone to connect with that actually needs you. And if you get really good at one, you're like, hey, can I invite, this is what happened to me, I invite one guy and I'm mentoring him, he's like, I got a friend that needs this, can I invite him? And I'm like, Okay, invite him once. Let's just see how it goes. It went great, so we ended up a tune. That's how all of, I didn't like go out and tell people. My, my disciples that I was discipling, they invited them. Like, I think Henry would like to come. Good, bring Henry. Let's see how it goes. I always say, for one meeting. If it goes well, maybe for two. Let's not overpromise and underperform. And we did that for years, and people came, and they loved it. And met, We met every week for five, six years. It was really a lot of fun. I looked forward to that meeting. They looked forward to that meeting, and after about a year, they did the teaching. I'd go, tomorrow, Mario, you're bringing the word next week, okay? So be ready. I want you to share something on the love of God. Okay, you're going to share for 15 minutes. We're all going to talk about it. What are we doing? First, you watch me do it. Then I watch you do it. Then you do it. So I just pray right now, God, that you would give us wisdom and courage. I thank you that you made us disciples and not just Christians. And I pray tonight, God, that you would give us the courage to get past our fears of people, past our fear of being um, ruled or controlled or anything else that's weird. And Lord, that we would just be a people who are so excited to actually be in community and to have spiritual mothers or spiritual uh, sisters, spiritual of dads or spiritual brothers in our life, big brothers that could come in and help us do life in the kingdom. And I bless every single person here. You know, there might be someone in here you don't know the Lord. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? Like you've come in here and you don't know the Lord. Or maybe my testimony, like, yeah, I received the Lord 10 times and it's never, I've never changed. Nothing's ever happened. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? It's like, I'd like to pray for you and have you just come up and some of the team just share with you. Yeah. I, is that yeah come on up here that's great is there anybody else Tom can you help that's awesome God bless you Tom's going to connect with you right there so excited yeah just extend your hand to this guy Lord we bless this man we bless this man in Jesus' name. We just release your grace and your power over him. God, we pray that tonight would be the first day of the rest of his life, that this would be amazing man, that he'd be, he'd be a leader in the kingdom. He wouldn't just be a disciple. He would be a great leader in the kingdom. 
Thank you, Lord. Is there anyone else you'd like to just come up? And, I know it takes courage, but it takes a lot of courage to... I don't like, like, close your eyes and, you know, raise your hand. It's like, if you can't raise your hand, probably not going to have the courage to walk with God. I always think, you know, he hung naked on a cross for us, so... If there's anyone else... Awesome. Okay, you're coming. God bless you. Thank you so very much. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. If you want to find out more, read my blog or listen to the previous podcast episodes. Go to chrisvelleton.com. Have an awesome day.